Hello, this is Mike. Welcome to another episode of Urban Legends and Mythology. That iconic sound just came from a Brewdog Hazy Chain IPA brewed right here in Central Ohio. It's a New England IPA. It's 7.2% alcohol by volume, and it is delicious. However, on this episode, we are actually leaving Ohio. We're actually even leaving America. We are heading all the way to the Himalayas for this, right near the Tibetan Plateau. Yes, you guessed it. I mean, I'm sure you probably guessed it because of the title, but today we're talking about the infamous Yeti. So I guess American Cryptids is going international on this one. So, as always, let's just jump right into it and start at the beginning. So, put simply, the Yeti is another one of these Bigfoot variants. It's found primarily throughout East Asia and Bhutan, China, India, Nepal, and even in Siberia. He's basically the winter Bigfoot or the mountain winter Bigfoot. However, folklorists, they trace his origins back to Sherpa folklore. Now the Sherpa, they're uh, people who kind of inhabit this region in the Himalayas and, you know, they pretty much live in the mountains and a lot of folklorists think that because of like misidentification of bears or yaks or other animals that may live in the region that the folklore kind of got intertwined you know kind of like how the skunk ape a lot of people thought they were misidentifying bears comes to the same conclusion they think that the sherpa were misidentifying bears and you know this folklore exists it gets bigger and it becomes an international sensation kind of like bigfoot kind of like the nessie folklores and traditions now the yeti is often described as being a large bipedal ape-like creature that is covered with brown gray or white hair and is sometimes depicted as having large sharp fangs or teeth and this folklore actually goes so in depth that there's actually three main like sub varieties or variants of the yeti there's the nylamo which has black fur it's the largest and fiercest it stands around 15 feet tall the chuti which stands around 8 feet tall, and it specifically lives from 8,000 to 10,000 feet above sea level. And then there's the Rang Shim Bombo, which has reddish-brown fur and is only 3 to 5 feet tall. And the name itself, Yeti, it actually comes from the Tibetan language. I mean, there are some variants, but generally it does translate to bear or man-bear, which may explain some of the features of being so tall and having these fangs and whatnot. And even in Russian folklore, further north, you get the Chichuna, which is another variant of this. It's an entity said to dwell in Siberia, and it has been described as six to seven feet tall and covered with dark hair. Now, according to native accounts from the nomadic Yaktuk and Tungus tribes that were there, it's a well-built Neanderthal-like man wearing pelts and bearing a white patch of fur on its forearms. It's said to occasionally consume human flesh, unlike their close cousins, the Yeti, which isn't said to consume human flesh. However, you get different urban legends and different mythologies and whatnot handed down throughout different tribes in slightly different regions. So it's not going to be the same across everything, kind of like how Bigfoot's not the same across the whole world. But that's what's cool about local tradition and local folklore, especially in like these really back area, tribal areas. You can get folklore that's so localized and handed down throughout so many generations that it could be going as far back as the Neolithic age and even 
further. It's amazing. And that's why oral histories are so fascinating because generally they don't change over generations or even millennia. And what really amazes me about this variant is they do describe it as like a Neanderthal man, which is fascinating because Neanderthal did exist in Asia. It wasn't as common as in Europe, but it did exist in Asia. You also had the Desnovians across Asia. You had other human variants too. But describing it like a Neanderthal-like man and keeping that oral history the same might indicate an oral history of this going as far back as the Neolithic or maybe even further because I think Neanderthal existed as a species for somewhere around 200,000 years. They didn't, they didn't really die out until about 40,000 years ago. And we know they interacted and even crossbred with modern humans. And the idea that they had this variant that was almost human, a Neanderthal, which their ancestors might have interacted with, is fascinating. And we see the same idea across several of these communities in this region. For one, they have a variant called the Mung. It was said to live alone or with very few of its kind, and it went sometimes on the ground and sometimes in the trees. It was only found in the higher mountains of their country. Although it was very much like a man, it was covered with long dark hair and was more intelligent than a monkey. And even that legend goes on to basically state that the more humans, the more people that came in number and kind of, I guess, in their mind civilized the area, led to these Tholmung disappearing, which could allude to the idea that Neanderthals, Desnovians, other human variants were being displaced by modern humans several thousand years ago as modern humans spread out. And where it gets really crazy is there's one aspect of Tibetan folklore, Tibetan religion, in which Tibetans consider themselves to be the descendants of Shin Rizig, the Buddha of compassion, in his incarnation as a monkey god. It's believed that the god married a demon, and out of this union came six children with long hair and tails. Slowly, the hair and tails disappeared due to the blessed grains they were fed. Some of the children, in the text says, inherited their father's qualities and others of those of their mother. Now, when you look at this from an anthropological point of view, this could describe Desnovians, or Denisovian, or however it's said, but I'm going to use the word Desnovian. Basically, they're an extinct species or subspecies of archaic human that ranged across Asia during the Middle and Lower Paleolithic. Now, what's interesting about this is they are found on the Tibetan Plateau, their remains, the few remains there are, and they're believed to have been a hybrid species. DNA shows close association with Neanderthal, and they could have also bred with modern humans. So it could have been Neanderthals and modern humans creating Desnovians, and then they were able to breed back and forth because, you know, it's it's not a straight line. It never is. There's a lot of mixing and mingling. So a lot of people think that they interbred with modern humans and they also interbred with Neanderthals and hell, they probably could be the result of humans and Neanderthals breeding. We just don't know. However, these different people, and that's what I'm saying in this whole thing, going as far back as, you know, the Upper Paleolithic, 
these people could be the source for this folklore that came about and it could have been human folklore saying that these Neanderthal, these these Novians, that they were wild people and they were not like us and it's a way to kind of separate humans from the rest of the pack. And it could have led to more exaggerated tales of myths and legends that end up in some religious texts and they keep getting handed down and they eventually morph into what we see as the modern day yeti or the modern day sasquatch or even the modern day skunk ape they're all human variants at the end of the day and it really just shows you how muddled our past and our genetics and hell even our evolution can be it's not a straight line it's a commingled bush but back to the topic at hand it appears that this yeti creature shows up in several folklores across several cultures in Southeast Asia, from the Mongols to the Chinese to the Bengalese and so on and so forth. They show up as mountain deities. Hell, even like in Russia, they show up as a wild man and so much more. I just barely, I haven't even started to even scratch the surface yet on all the folklore. For example, there's a Bhutanese myth about the Yeti. It's actually called the Miyogi. It's a magical creature of the wilds that is simultaneously a supernatural being and a creature invoked to scare children. So I guess he's like the Yeti equivalent of the Boogeyman, or as they say in Great Britain, the Bogeyman. But it shares several of the same characteristics attributed to these Yeti-like creatures in the eastern Himalayas with some additional traits. It become invisible at will. Its blood has magic qualities and it can be used to create talismans, amulets, and magic weapons, which I'm sure show up in other various stories in that folklore. There are also some Hindu mythologies where they relate the Yeti to the monkey god Hanuman, who is also depicted as a half-human, half-monkey, so more of this possible ancient, archaic, pre-human hybridization going on. Some also consider the Yeti to be disciples of Shiva and are thought to be spirits from the sun. And I'll even touch back into some Sherpa folklore. Apparently amongst the Sherpas and I guess some of the Russians living in Siberia, these are where the more dangerous variants come in, which is why they usually get related to the idea of a bear or a wild bear-like human. For example, there's the Chuti. It's described as bear-sized, covered in black, gray, or dark, or red hair. They usually walk around on all fours and prey on cattle. They're known as killers of sheep, goats, and yaks. There's also a variant known as the Mitti, which is about the size of a human, with reddish or light blonde fur, a pointed head, and hair falling over its face. It walks upright and is known to kidnap humans, which kind of makes me think this could be one of those folk tales that go back as far as the upper or lower Paleolithic, because some people generally believe that in order to find breeding partners back when we were just little groups of bands of like 5 or 30 or whatever. We would go raid a nearby group and kidnap, you know, the women and kill the men in order to have a new breeding partner in that group, which is a thing that humans did. And other variants of humans, Neanderthals, Desnovians, etc., etc. So possible tales of the Mitti could be a way of telling a female in your group not to stray too far away from the main group from your protection because the midi will come and kidnap you and we may never see you again. 
And we even find evidence of the Yeti in the writings of Pliny the Elder. He was a Roman author, naturalist, natural philosopher in the first century AD. And he writes this account about what becomes known as the Yeti. Quote, Among the mountainous districts of the eastern parts of India in what is called the country of Kathrakuti, we find the satyr, an animal of extraordinary swiftness. These go sometimes on four feet and sometimes walk erect. They have also the features of a human being. On account of their swiftness, these creatures are never to be caught except when they are either aged or sickly. Taron gives the name of Coromande to a nation which dwell in the woods and have no proper voice. These people screech in a frightful manner. Their bodies are covered with hair. Their eyes are of a sea green color and their teeth like those of a dog, end quote. So to even some degree, the Romans had heard of this folklore, this mythology. And even today in Tibetan Buddhism, where it's considered a non-human animal, it's nonetheless human enough to sometimes be able to follow Dharma. Several stories actually feature yetis becoming helpers and disciples to religious figures. Even in Tibet, Images of yetis are paraded and occasionally worshipped as guardians against evil spirits. However, because some yetis sometimes act as enforcers of dharma, hearing or seeing one is often considered a bad omen. So, there you go. They do play a role in Tibetan religion, or Tibetan Buddhism, to this very day. But enough of the folklore. Let's say you want to go meet a yeti. You want to go yeti hunting. Well, first you have to get your ass to the Himalayas. That's where they pretty much live. So it would probably be best to plan a mountain climbing expedition. I'd probably stay away from Everest, even though that's where, like, everybody goes when they go to the Himalayas. But let's be honest, the yeti's not hanging out on Mount Everest. If he was, every person who ever climbed that mountain would be seeing him, and he'd probably get annoyed. But if you are elsewhere in and around the Himalayas and on the Tibetan Plateau, you might meet the Yeti or see footprints. Or you might meet a bear and get eaten. It's a toss-up. But how does the Yeti kind of get into Western folklore? How is it that I'm sitting here in America talking about it today? Well, it's really in the latter half of the 19th century and the middle of the 20th century when reports really blow up of what becomes the Yeti and it kind of gets into the mainstream and makes its way around the world. So throughout the 19th century, you had all these people, mostly British guys, going around the world and they're really filling in those dark areas that are left on the maps. And they end up in the area of the Himalayas and they're thinking, hey, I want to be the guy to document this group of people or I want to be the guy to climb these mountains or whatever they were doing over there at the time. So it's actually in 1899 in Lawrence Waddell's book Among the Himalayas where we get an early record of reported footprints. Waddell reported his guide's description of a large ape-like creature that left the prints which Waddell thought were made by a bear. However, many of the Tibetans insisted that it was made by this large bipedal ape-like creature. However, Waddell, being a natural skeptic, even wrote that no matter how many Tibetans he interrogated on the subject, no one could give him an authentic case. Basically, it always resolved into something that somebody heard of. It's like, I heard it from my brother's cousin's nephew's friend's former roommate. 
However, reports of sightings would pick up in the early 20th century when a bunch of Westerners began making determined attempts to scale the many mountains in the area and occasionally would report seeing strange or odd creatures or tracks and sometimes even bipedal ape-like creatures. One account comes from 1925, a man named Tom Basie. He was a photographer and member of the Royal Geographical Society. He wrote that he saw a creature at about 15,000 feet or 4,600 meters near Izumu Glacier. He later wrote that he observed the creature from about 200 to 300 yards. That's about two football fields, three football fields or 180 to 270 meters for my international listeners. He observed it for about a minute. The figure in the outline was exactly like a human being, walking upright and stopping occasionally to pull up some dwarf rhododendron bushes. So apparently he was out there picking flowers for his Yeti girlfriend or whatever. Hey, maybe it was their anniversary. We don't know. He's just a Yeti. He's sitting there minding his own business and this photographer walks up on him and he's probably just like, get away from me, dude. I'm busy. Or maybe he was just wanting to decorate his ice cave. Who knows? But then it said about two hours later, Tom Beasy and his companions descended the mountain and saw the creature's prints and described them as similar in shape to those of a man, but only six to seven inches long by four inches wide. The prints were undoubtedly those of a biped. However, Western interest in the Yeti does peak in the 50s while these people are attempting to climb Mount Everest. In 1951, Eric Shipton took photographs of a number of large prints in the snow at about 6,000 meters or 20,000 feet above sea level. They were scrutinized and thought to be distorted by snow melt or whatever. However, some still do argue today that those photos are the best evidence of the Yeti's existence. And in 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay reported seeing large footprints while also scaling Mount Everest. And Sir Edmund Hillary is the one who really blows it up in the media. However, afterwards, you don't really see a lot of sightings of Mount Everest anymore. But you do start seeing sightings like in and around Nepal making it into the Western mainstream media. And even in 1960, Sir Edmund Hillary returns to the Himalayas in order to search for more evidence of the Yeti. He actually ends up in a monastery which claims to hold the scalp of a Yeti and he took it back to London for analysis. However, he couldn't really identify it. I think the closest he got was he thought it came from a Suro blue bear or black bear. And you would see other accounts come up. Over the next several years, even to the modern day, in 1970, a British mountaineer named Don Willens claimed to have witnessed a creature when scaling Annapurna, which is the 10th highest mountain in the world. It's actually in Nepal. Uh, He says that he saw the creature moving around on all fours, which is common in Yeti mythology. And then you see several sightings throughout the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and then it makes its way onto television and in modern pop culture. And then, as always, with any kind of folklorist tradition like this, you always get the skeptics and the detractors. And I understand it because I come from a scientific background and, you know, my scientific mind screams, where's the evidence? You know, oral tradition is fine, but is there really a Yeti? 
hanging out in an ice cave somewhere up in the Himalayas or a group or several groups of these yetis in ice caves hanging out in the Himalayas today. The truth is we don't actually know. We probably will never know until we actually came across a yeti body, which would probably never happen. And of course you always get the detractors that say these people are misidentifying bears or whatever other critters that are living around. And yeah, that's fair. Some of it could be misidentifying bears. But generally when something is that important and it makes its way into folklore and tradition, there has to be a flashpoint. And I still allude to my hypothesis that that flashpoint goes as far back as the upper or maybe even lower Paleolithic. And if those myths, those legends, those folklores, those oral traditions, if they do happen to go back that far, then discounting it as bare misidentification is pretty insulting. Especially when we know that there were these other human variants in the area at the time and modern humans were interacting with them. Surely, if you're a modern human and you're interacting with something that's so human-like but not quite there, that is going to show up in your mythology. It's going to you're going to create some story as to why they are the way they are and why you are different. And that could have evolved into the Yeti folklore that we have today. And of course, as always, just because we haven't seen it yet or gotten our hands on a specimen yet, doesn't mean that there isn't a healthy breeding group out there existing right now. We have to remember that the Himalayas, the Tibetan Plateau, Siberia, these are all very sparsely populated areas. And there are still some parts of these areas today where I can pretty much guarantee a human has never stepped foot there. We see it on a map, we can see it from a satellite in space, you know, but most humans don't actually go there. So there could be a breeding population of, I don't know, some kind of Yeti-like creature in these areas that we've just never observed. Remember, more than three quarters of our own planet has never been, like, physically observed by human eyes. So we don't really know what could possibly be out there that could shock us. For instance, think of it like you're walking in the woods. You're aware of all the surrounding wildlife, the deer, the squirrels, the birds, the ants on the ground. You're aware, you know that that's all there, but how often do you see it? I don't see a deer every time I go walking out in the woods, even though I know there's a healthy population of deer around. You know, it could be the same with the Yeti, it could be the same with Bigfoot, especially if they're existing in these isolated pockets and they have fairly small breeding groups. But I guess until we actually meet one, it will always exist in myth, legend, folklore, and even religion. And on that note, I think that's where I'll leave it today. Once again, this is Mike. I do thank you for listening to the show. And as always, if you do enjoy the show and you want to hear more of it, just help me out. Spread the word. As I always say, this show spreads by word of mouth. And a lot of that actually comes from you listeners and supporters out there who are sharing my links and supporting me on that Spotify monthly supporter program. It's as cheap as 99 cents a month, so if you could spare a dollar a month, I mean, that would go a long way towards upgrading some equipment around here. 
which is a future goal as we move into season three and even start the planning stages for seasons four and beyond. However, if you want to hear more about that, I did release a bonus episode a few days ago, kind of discussing all that stuff and some of the Q&A stuff that I get on a daily basis. So be sure to check out that episode as well. Once again, this is Mike. I thank you for listening. I'll see you in the next episode. We only have, I think, three more episodes left till the season finale. So be sure to stick around for that. It's going to be epic.